Welcome, action fans, and thanks for joining me on this special breakdown bonus edition of the podcast. I'm your host, Scott Murphy, and on this episode, I have the fortune to talk to breakdown director Jonathan Mostow all about the making of the movie. Over the course of the interview, you will hear about the early inspirations behind the movie, how our season star, Kurt Russell, came on board the film, and the troubles of selling a suspense script in Hollywood. Plus, we get into how some of the stunts on the movie were achieved, uh, his love of practical effects, and his thoughts on the current state of the action genre. All of which, and much more, you can hear right now in my interview with Jonathan. Hi Jonathan, welcome to All 90s Action All The Time. Great to have you on the show. My pleasure to be here. So we've got you on the show uh, to talk about a film we recently covered, Breakdown, which you were the director of. To start off with, uh, can you tell us about the initial inspiration of Breakdown, which according to IMDb Trivia, came to you in a drive through Las Vegas. Is that true? Or is that just IMDb Trivia being IMDb Trivia? Well, that's partially true. Um, the the I would say that, that the... You know, it's, it's people always ask when, when you're running to people who aren't in the entertainment industry and they find out that you are a writer or a director or something, they almost always ask you the same question. This is, where do you get your ideas? Where do those ideas come from? Mm-hmm. As if, you know, you crazy show business people uh, somehow, like your brains, you know, sort of um, divine these ideas. And... Um, a lot of this is is actually fresh in my mind uh, because we just um, uh, went through a process of putting together a, a special edition uh, Blu-ray of uh, Breakdown, which uh, Paramount is going to be releasing. Um, and uh, probably by the time this podcast is aired, uh, the, the Blu-ray will be out. I think it's street date is uh, September 21. And yes. uh, by the time so, this episode comes out, it'll have been out for, a, for about a week. So uh, anybody okay, listening perfect. can buy that Blu-ray right now. Perfect. Uh, and, and, you know, there's, there's two versions out there. There's a, there's one that an Australian distributor did uh, without much participation from me. And then there's the Paramount version, which uh, uh, I was deeply involved in and, and actually has a commentary track with, me and Kurt Russell, we went in and recorded that a few months ago. And um, so, so a lot of this is, is very fresh in my mind. And I, I would say there are three stimuli that resulted in breakdown. Number one was when I was a young kid, uh, my father took me to this Hitchcock double feature. And, and one of the movies was uh, The Lady Vanishes, uh, which was sort of an early Hitchcock effort. And it's actually, I think it probably more plays as a light comedy nowadays, but for me at age, you know, 10 or whatever I was at the time, uh, it was utterly gripping. And the idea in that story is a, a, a man meets a woman on a train and then uh, he goes off, I don't know, to the dining car. When he comes back, she's gone and nobody seems to have remembered her ever existing. And I find that sort of, I found that a very gripping idea. Um, and I think in, at some level, I had to sort of exorcise that out of my subconscious. The second stimulus was, as you say, um, and I probably had mentioned this in an interview at the time, you know, sometimes I would drive, I'm in Los Angeles, 
uh, if I would go maybe with some friends or something to go to Las Vegas, we would drive. It's like a five, six hour drive and you're out in the middle of the desert and, you know, you see these, these like little shacks or a rundown trailer home, you know, a half mile off the road in the middle of nowhere. And you're sort of thinking who lives there? Like what, what's going on there? And it just sort of, you know, and if, and if you're at all mildly paranoid, which I probably am, um, you start to sort of spin kind of scary scenarios in your head. So that was sort of the second um, source of the idea. And the third was, uh, your listeners will probably find a little bit more amusing perhaps, which was uh, I had been uh, hired to direct a movie based on a Stephen King short story. And uh, it was a short story called Trucks. And it, uh, and actually was, it had been made into a movie in the 80s that, that Stephen King himself actually directed. Oh, you uh, mean Maximum Overdrive? Maximum Overdrive, right. And um, uh, I, I don't think that it was necessarily, you know, considered Citizen Kane, uh, but the <laughs> producer I was working with owned the underlying short story, and that was uh, Dino De Laurentiis. And Dino felt like, you know what, we could, let's try this again but let's go back to the short story. So I had been working and developing that. I had even scattered locations out in the desert. And then um, at, at some point we, and we developed a script that was actually pretty good. And then uh, the business affairs guy came in one day and he said, oh yeah, we can't call this Stephen King's trucks. Like in the poster, it, it, you won't be able to say Stephen King's trucks. I'll just have to say trucks. And suddenly, the entire financial reason to make the movie, which is that you could have a poster that said Stephen King's trucks, that, that went away. So the, the movie suddenly was like canceled. And I was like, wait a second, I, I've got like, I developed a script and, and I got locations and everything else. And, and, and I kind of in a sort of moment of desperation was thinking, how can I salvage the situation? And that's when I came up with the original idea for Breakdown. And uh, and then I wrote the script actually very quickly and had nothing to do with trucks. It had nothing to do with the Stephen King short story other than the fact that it took place in the desert. That was the only common link. Um, and um, it, so that's, that's really, that's how Breakdown came about. So it seems like it was a really quick turnaround from like, so from writing the script to going into production, was, was that quite, a, it sounds like it was quite a quick turnaround there. It, it was it was fairly quick. Um, the The original idea was, and also I was trying to to write something I could do in a low budget. So I thought, oh, this is perfect. It's out in the desert. We don't need lights. You know, there's no real location fees to pay. Um, this will be very inexpensive. I could, you know, when I was at the beginning of my career, and you know, I'd only basically made like one little movie, and um, uh, and and I had then been, which we didn't. It kind of got me recognized in Hollywood, and I had various development deals on movies. But the 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 obstacle I kept running into is um, it, it's very hard to make the leap from doing a small million dollar budgeted movie, at least it was at that time, to doing something bigger. So um, I was attached to projects, but then I would sort of get removed as the director before. You know the project could get to the starting line. Some some of these movies got made without me. Some of them never got made. And so I realized, you know, I got to write my own thing. 
I got to write my own thing and then insist that if somebody wants to make it, I have to be the director. And so that that's really what um, what what breakdown was. Um, and um, I'm sorry, I think I forgot. I think I forgot your question. Uh, <laughs> no, it was just uh, I was just talking about the the kind of quick turnaround between oh yes, the right, right, right. Oh, to, yes. to going so, into so, filming. Yes, yes. So so you know, I had been it had been you know like five years since I'd made the movie that had gotten me sort of attention in Hollywood, and um, you know, so I had only experienced that. that but for me, Hollywood was this place where like you know dreams come to die. You know, it was it was I had all these projects that I would be in love with. And then it just, they just wouldn't happen. And so suddenly, you know, I wrote Breakdown and my idea was to make it fairly inexpensively. And then the producer said, well, who do you want to star in it? And I said, well, my dream would be Kurt Russell. And so the producer went out and, and made a sizable offer to Kurt. And then he came aboard and suddenly, yeah, suddenly it was going. And I kind of couldn't believe it. I, I, it, it, it was after years of sort of what felt like banging my head against the wall, um, suddenly it was sort of like slicing warm butter. Now I should say it wasn't, it wasn't a, it wasn't a clear shot. It wasn't like, oh, here's the, here's the script folks. And then people like showering me with money to make it. Um, it actually did have um, some hiccups. And, and one of them was that, um, uh, originally, I, I wrote the script and with uh, and, and tried to you know see if I could get it sold at one of the studios, and all the studios passed. And then um, and then the only person that that actually bought the script at that point was Dino and Martha De Laurentiis. And then with Dino and Martha, we attached Kurt and. You know, we thought, okay, great. Now we're making the movie, and Kurt was, you know, a very big movie star at that time. Certainly, you know, um, a, a big enough star to get a distribution deal with one of the major studios. And um, all the studios passed again, and um, you know, and then the, the feedback would be like, well, this isn't, this doesn't really work, and it's not very effective, and you know, it's not suspenseful. And I and I learned, and I'd already actually learned at that point already because of some other projects I'd been involved with that with suspense scripts, um, the, the way that the way that executives in Hollywood read scripts is that they, you know, back in the day when they were physically printed out, you know, on, on a printer, uh, the executive would really take home a box, a cardboard box of scripts for the weekend. They'd have to read like 15 or 20 scripts over the weekend and then Monday morning come into the studio and there, there'd be a meeting of all the creative executives and everybody would talk about the scripts that they'd read and compare notes or whatever. So the process of reading scripts was one where if from an executive standpoint, you, just, you need to know what happens and you need to know what happens so you don't look like a, a, a moron in the Monday morning meeting. So you learn to read scripts very quickly and you're flipping through to basically just, you know, find out what happens. And so 120 page script, you know, a good executive can read that in, you know, 30, 40 minutes. And the problem with suspense is that suspense exists not, it's not in the dialogue, it's not in the, in the lines of description. Suspense exists kind of between the lines of dialogue and the lines of description. Yeah. And so you, you almost need to imbibe a suspense script in real time. And executives just don't have 
the time to do that. It's just, it's a hugely demanding job that goes at breakneck pace. And so that's what I, I found that with some other suspense things I've been involved with and I found it as well with Breakdown, which is just people, they wouldn't get it. They'd be like, oh, well, this is a guy, he's driving through the desert, he has some problems, why should I care? What's, what's good about this? And so the only reason the movie got made is that Dino and Martha believed in it enough to say, you know what, we're going to take the risk on this. We're going to take the financial risk. And um, we, we had, they had pre-sold half of the, uh, they, they pre-sold some of the foreign rights. So they had half the budget covered, <clears throat> but the other half of the budget they covered out of their own pocket, at least to begin with. And it was only until we, we had already been shooting for a month and a half that they bought some footage to Paramount and Paramount saw it. And then they came aboard as the, as the U.S. distributor. Um, so, you know, but again, from, from my perspective as a filmmaker, I was, I was making my movie. So it felt like it was a quick turnaround. Although when I look back on it, it was certainly fraught with, um, with a lot of, you know, what, what seemed at the time sort of setbacks and, and almost, uh, almost disasters of the thing falling apart. And going on to the kind of the filming, I, I was kind of wondering, you know, obviously you mentioned, obviously we're covering a season on them that, you know, Kurt Russell was uh, a big, big star at the time. And, you know, there was other name actors in the film. It's uh, J.T. Walsh's final performance in, in a movie in his, in his lifetime. And um, Kathleen Quinlan, you know, these are all kind of name uh, actors. And, you know, this is your second feature. You're 35 years old. You know, like, were you were you nervous? Like, you know, first day of shooting, you know, like shooting with these actors? Yeah, I mean, th there's, I think any filmmaker who arrives on the set, particularly the first day and isn't nervous is either uh, a sociopath or, or a, 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 a a narcissist or, or just stupid. Um, yeah, right. So, okay. <laughs> so uh, and and this was, you know, and this this is a movie that I originally intended to be a low budget movie, and suddenly it had, you know, Kurt was a very expensive movie star, and suddenly it was a big, you know, you know, it was it was it was on track to be sort of a studio sized movie. So it was still small, you know, it wasn't it wasn't like a big tentpole budget but it was a far greater budget than anything I'd ever worked with and um uh and so yeah it was it, there was an aspect of it that was that was intimidating the thing that that made it um not not so much that it was it, that it was paralyzing was that um I had had this great gift from Kurt Russell and that was that Immediately prior to filming Breakdown, he was shooting the sequel of Escape from New York and it was a movie Escape from LA. And it was all took place at night. And it was a long shoot. It was like, I think it was like 70 nights, which is, uh, you know, like four months of shooting or something. Mm -hmm. And when you're on a night schedule, it means that, you know, you show up for work, eh, maybe like five, six p.m., and you shoot all night and then you wrap and then you go home and you sleep during the day. And then it, you know, starts up again at night. And so Kurt said to me, um, and, and he had signed on to do breakdown right as he was going off to do escape from LA. And he said, look, I have to stay up on, on the weekends. I can't, cause you can't like, you know, comes 
Friday and Saturday, you don't just suddenly shift back to a regular schedule. You, you, um, otherwise you're going to, you know, it's too physically demanding. So you just stay on kind of that night schedule. So he said, I, I got to stay up on weekends. So if you'd be willing to come over to my house, like, you know, 10 at night on, you know, Saturday and, and Sunday nights, um, we can just work until you're too tired and we can, you know, just sort of go through the script and talk about ideas and everything else. So um, for months, I would go to his house, show up there, you know, around 10 o'clock and, you know, the rest of his family is, you know, Goldie and, and Kate and everybody are like shuffling off to bed in pajamas. And we would sit in, in like a room in his house and um, we would, and, you know, I was young enough that I, I you know, and, and still used to kind of pulling all-nighters from college, I suppose, that we would work until like, you know, four in the morning. And um, what we did is we just would talk through the script, like literally just beat by beat. And so that when it came time to film, um, he and I knew exactly what we wanted to do. We, you know, there were no, a, a lot of time gets wasted on movies because, you know, you come in in the morning and you're sort of blocking out the scene. And then, you know, the movie star has like basic questions like, well, what am I doing in the scene? Or why is my character doing this? Or why is he coming through the door instead of, you know, climbing through the window, whatever it is that you're stopping to have all these conversations. Well, we had had all those conversations and it was especially helpful in the case of breakdown because part of the deal that Kurt had made on the film was that, uh, even though we were filming all over the Southwest United States, we were in like Utah and Arizona, and Nevada, Northern California. He was sleeping at home in his bed in Los Angeles every night. So um, every day, every morning he would be picked up, uh, driven to the local private airport, flown by private jet to an airstrip um, where a helicopter was waiting with the blades already going. He'd go into the helicopter. The helicopter would fly him typically like, you know, five or 10 minutes to our base camp. Then he'd go into makeup and wardrobe. And then I would get him on set maybe like 11, 11.30 in the morning. We'd shoot for, you know, an hour or so, break for lunch, come back after lunch, shoot another few hours. And then the helicopter would come back, <laughs> pick him up and, you know, he'd fly back to LA. So, um, I had, you know, half the number of hours on set with him every day that you normally would have with the star of your movie. And it worked great because A, we had talked through everything and B, um, you know, Kurt is such a pro that it was rare that we were, you know, doing more than three or four takes for any particular setup. Um, so your question was, was it intimidating? And I would say, you know, it's, it's probably most intimidating when you're talking about dealing with your movie star, because they're really, you know, that's, they're the 800 pound gorilla, so to speak, in, in these things. But what I found in my career is that most movie stars with longevity, which Kurt certainly had uh, and has, they understand that their career depends on doing the best possible movie. And the best possible movie happens when everybody you're working with feels comfortable. 
So my experience has been that most movie stars are incredibly gifted at making everyone around them, especially director, feel at ease, comfortable, not intimidated. Um, so, uh, so, so, but, you know, I would, so I would say it's Kurt's personality coupled with that particular unusual circumstance um, made it feel really great just right from the beginning. And uh, I have to say, that um, from the research I, I've done this season, um, I, I definitely get that sense that, you know, uh, Kurt is a, a team player. Um, and uh, yeah, I, unlike uh, so, some other people we've covered on the podcast so far. Yeah, right. And by the way, I mean, especially, you know, what's interesting about your show is your show is looking specifically at the 90s, you know, and just look at the actors from the nineties that are still working today, you know, that still get, that are still in, in, in big movies with, you know, and still have a big audience and look at the actors that have sort of faded out. And I would say that probably in, in almost all cases, the actors that, well, it's not fair to say entirely because there's some actors that are wonderful people that for whatever reason, their careers didn't work out. But, um, you know, I, I certainly know that some of those actors were, they were just, they were awful to work with, you know. Um, again, I've been lucky. Most of the actors I've worked with have just been fantastic collaborators and and great people. And and you'd want to go out and have a beer with them any day of the week. Um, but uh, um, it's interesting. It's, it's definitely interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I did want to talk a little bit about as well, um, how difficult it was uh, filming some of the stunts in the movie, uh, particularly the one where Kurt Russell's character is uh, clambering the, the undercarriage of the lorry and then comes up on the side of the lorry. That that seems uh, like complicated stuff. And did C Kurt Russell do his own stunts for that? Yeah, Kurt did, Kurt did most of his own stunts in the movie. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the, the the interesting thing about, especially if you're both a writer and director, which I am, is when you're writing a script, you can only wear your writer's hat. Otherwise, it's, you, you just get too up in your head. So you wear your writer's hat, and you just imagine what you want to see on screen with no regard to, well, how is that going to be possible? And then when you're done with the script, you take off that writer's hat, you put on your director's hat, and then which is a much more analytical uh, hat. And then you look at these sequences and you know, first thing you go is, oh my God, how is that gonna be possible? How do we do that? You know? um, and the fun of making movies is that what you discover is that every single see everything's possible. And you just have to break it down, no pun, you have to break it down <laughs> into its component parts and and isolate it down into it, 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 every little isolated element. And then you're figuring out how to do it. There, there was a fantastic film that came out two years ago uh, and it won the Oscar for best documentary, Free Solo. All right, yeah. Um, and uh, if, if your listeners haven't seen that film, I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, and it is, it is a real life documentary about this guy, Alex Honnold, that uh, does free climbing, which is 
got to be the most dangerous thing imaginable. And he just, he climbs up these, you know, 3000 sheer vertical drop off rock faces with no climbing equipment, just his hands and his feet. Um, and, uh, and the movie details his attempt to climb this um, cliff, uh, 3000 foot cliff, um, in the US that uh, nobody had ever tried before because it would, it would literally be suicide. And, and how he does it is he literally plans out the climb, literally just toehold by toehold. My apologies. Oh, that's my, sorry. That was my uh, <laughs> Apple watch just spoke up. Um, and, and, and he maps it all out, he memorizes it, and then he executes. And that's exactly how you do any stunt sequence. So uh, in the case of that particular sequence, I'm always loath to give away the, the, uh, the secrets to, um, uh, to people who haven't yet seen the movie, because uh, I don't want, you know, I want them just to sort of uh, enjoy the movie. But um, in the case of that, it was a combination of stuff done in a real truck, some stuff done where, um, literally we're in a parking lot, but the camera is tilted up. So you don't realize that the truck's not moving, but the truck is shaking and we're blowing high speed wind. Um, the, uh, there are shots where you're looking down at Kurt and, you know, he's just inches above the asphalt. Well, that was actually a, um, a thing that uh, the special effects guys manufactured, which was basically like a treadmill where um, the treadmill was was painted to look like asphalt, and then you know it it, it just reads as um, you know as as road moving underneath him. So um, again, you, you in all these sequences, you tend to use a combination of techniques and you mix them up, and then you're just constantly tricking the viewer's eye. Um, and uh, I think one of the reasons that breakdown still feels like a visceral film is there's there's basically no CGI in it, you know? Um, there's a couple of matte paintings um, and, and a, like a digital two-dimensional matte painting. But other than that, um, there's, there's no computer generated graphics. And, you know, and I've certainly done a ton of CGI obviously in my career. And the challenge always with, with that stuff is um, is just to make it look as real as the real thing. So there's no substitute for just shooting something for real. So putting Kurt on the real truck and having him do that stuff, uh, you know, it, it's it's hard to go wrong. And do you, do you think that people are, are maybe craving the real thing uh, more again? Because, like, I feel that your uh, film, Breakdown, has uh, grown in stature over the years, and I do feel also that um, with the success of things like uh, John Wick, that there is a kind of drive towards that kind of more um, throwback feel of, of an action movie. That's a great question. I mean, it's, it's interesting because Breakdown, when it came out, even at that point. So Breakdown came out in 1997. And that was just sort of at the, almost the, the, the starting point. And the starting point maybe was 
sorry to put it, it already happened. I mean, you already you had Jurassic Park, you had Twister, you already had some big spectacle movies that had, you know, that were starting to define Independence what, Day 96. Exactly, yeah. And those were starting to define what movies were going to become. They're going to become these giant, huge budget, you know, special effects filled blockbusters. Um, and uh, so in the summer, the, the breakdown came out, there was, you know, I, I think the week, right, you see the week before, the week after, there's this movie Volcano, which I think was a volcano erupts and, you know, engulfs Los Angeles or something. They're, they're all these just sort of like high concept, sort of big spectacle action films. And um, so already people immediately said, oh, wow, this is like a throwback, you know, and, and kind of em embraced it really kind of from, from, from the get-go. Within, I've always found within the beltway of Hollywood, there was a, an appreciation for it because, you know, most people who make movies, um, they, you know, certainly at that point, like me, they'd grown up really on a diet of movies from the 70s, all those great, you know, French Connection and The Sting and, you know, uh, you know, it can go on and on, right? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, yeah. pretty much anything with Paul Newman or Robert Redford or, or uh, Steve McQueen or whatever. <laughs> and um, and that that's the stuff that inspired, had inspired people to go into the film business, to go into making movies, right? And people didn't, you know, there's very few filmmakers, at least at the time, and I would argue maybe even still, that, you know, came to Hollywood going, I want to make something full of like giant things exploding and spaceships crashing into other spaceships, right? Um, I mean, certainly those people exist and maybe some of those people sort of go into special effects, but if you're a storyteller at heart, you care about character, you know? And if you're a storyteller like me, you want you want a story with, with a real character at the center of it, but also, you know, with, some sort of scope and size and pace to the story because that's something gets your adrenaline going. That that's that's sort of what floats my own boat, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, so so I think within the film business, people recognize breakdown as like, okay, here's a film that kind of gets your pulse quickening, but it's also feels feels real and there's a real performance there and it's about you know it, it's a real it's a real character um, and. Um, uh, and, and so as, you know, special effects and, and visual effects made anything imaginable possible, and you're getting to these movies with, you know, $300 million budgets, the audience has sort of seen everything that can be seen. You know, there's really, it, it, it's pretty hard to wow the audience. Um, and, uh, you know, in the, in the 90s, and since your show's about the 90s, I would say that there's that's that was sort of the two films that most wowed the audience, and it's hard to think of anything since that visually has wowed the audience as much as Terminator Two, which was you know the the liquid metal yeah. Terminator, um, the Robert Patrick uh, character, and then Jurassic Park, where you actually saw like dinosaurs on screen, and you know. Those two movies, when you, you know, if you would, you know, if you're old enough to have seen those in the theater when they came out, the audience's jaws were on the floor. They'd never seen anything like that, you know? Um, and, uh, and then ever since, everybody has just sort of been doing iterations of that. 
And the only thing that's really changed is the quantity of visual effect shots. So for example, a, a big Marvel movie or a big special effects temple movie nowadays, it'll have, you know, probably 1500 visual effect shots. Um, and if you think back to, you know, one of the interesting statistics about Terminator 2, which is again, changed the game for so many, for the audience and for filmmakers, that only had like 90 visual effect shots in it, but they had huge impact on the audience because people had never seen that before. They were like watching an object literally transform into another object like magically that had just never, never been seen before. Um, and, uh, and, and so two things happen when you, when you start getting to these films that have 1500 visual effects. Number one is that um, it, it sort of becomes eye fatigue for the viewer, right? Because it's just like, it's just so much visual information to take in. Um, and it just becomes like, it's, it's like going to buffet that has 1500 dishes at it. It's just overwhelming, right? Um, the other thing, and, and you don't hear this ever really spoken about, but you know, it's definitely a conversation that I've had with other directors is that there's filmmaker fatigue and each one of those visual effect shots is a production unto itself. Each visual effect shot, whether it's, you know, and they range from, you know, a half a second to maybe, you know, a long visual effect shot might be, you know, several seconds, you know, occasionally you have some incredible shot that, you know, could go on for, you know, 30 seconds or something. But even though they're so short, they require incredible planning. Each shot requires, and I'm not exaggerating, probably anywhere from 20 to 50 meetings. And that's the, 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 the conceptualization. How are we going to do it? How are we actually going to, what's the methodology we're going to use to use this visual effect shot? Is it all going to be done on the computer? Is part of it going to be shot for real? Is there a visual element to it? Do we have to go to, you know, um, Argentina and shoot a plate of a waterfall that then is, then we're going to digitally enhance. Like, so you have all these meetings about that. And then you get into the actual making of the shot. And there's all the departments, whether you're dealing with ILM or one of the other effects houses um, there within that there's all these departments, there's, there's animation, there's lighting, there, there's, there's, there's uh, rendering. There's all, all these different, aspects that go into the shot and 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 so you're seeing the director is seeing the progress of the shot as it's making its way through and then they finally get the shot to where they're proposing the effects company's proposing okay we think this is good enough to put in the movie and then the director and his visual effects team working on the on the movie uh they're reviewing it they're saying no that looks fake or no the 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 way the the character is moving doesn't look like it's obeying the law of physics or whatever. And you have, again, there's, there's, there, it's called a review process and um, many, many more meetings like that. So that, and, and all that time, and, and those meetings are, they happen starting in pre-production. They're happening while you're shooting the film. They're happening in post-production. And so all the time you're spending in those meetings, you are not talking to the actors. You're not just alone in the editing room with your editor trying to you know make the scene work better or the pace of the movie work better you're not working on the script you're not you know 
doing any of the other millions of jobs, working with a composer, any one of the other millions of jobs that you have as a director, you're in, you're in sort of this, these, this, these visual effects meetings. And because particularly in a large movie, and I'm sorry, I may be giving, uh, uh, answering a question you didn't ask or, or giving you an answer. But I've actually never sort of spoken about this, uh, at least in, a, in an interview. Um, the the uh, uh, visual effects almost always, well, in fact, I'd say 99.9%, .9%, if not 100% of the time on big movies, the single biggest budgetary item in the budget for the film are the visual effects. And, you know, so, you know, if you're doing a $200 million movie, it's quite likely the visual effects budget is 50 million, you know? Um, so because it's so expensive, um, it, it sort of is the, um, uh, it, it, it always is, it's like demands kind of the most attention. Everybody's the most nervous about it. Um, and so it, it always takes priority. So, uh, uh, you know, I remember doing a, a movie where I had a, a really wonderful Oscar winning editor who it was his first big visual effects movie. And I remember post-production at one point, he just turned to me and said, you know, I never want to do one of these visual effects movies again because I'm spending most of my time, you know, in these technical conversations about the shots, about the visual effects shots, as opposed to what is the core of my craft, which is shaping the, the, the architecture of the movie and the scenes and the drama and the pace and telling, just telling the story. So, um, what what happens in 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 these situations because directors are only human right and there's only one of them per movie unless it's you know like a directing team um but it's almost always just one person um it it's it's like kind of just overwhelming and i um you know and so you can and and yet even though your job is to make sure all those visual effect shots turn out great what's your real job your real job is to make sure the movie's great to make sure you're telling the story in a way that's compelling and not boring and dramatically gripping and emotionally moving and all that kind of stuff. And it, it's a real balancing game. There's guys like Jim Cameron that do it effortlessly. They are masters. And, and, and Jim Cameron, in my mind, is not just a great writer. He's not just a great director. His gift is he can keep, you know, look at Avatar, which is all visual effect shots. He, he can keep you know, 2,500 visual effect shots in his head and supervise and manage all those and still tell a great story. You know, um, most other, few other filmmakers in the planet can do that. And so, uh, and I have seen movies um, where, you know, I've, I've like say, I've run into the director right before the movie comes out and they look like they've been up hit upside the head with a baseball bat. They look like literally just dazed. And I'll say to them, how many visual effects shots in your movie? And they'll say, oh, you know, 1800 or something. And I just know at that point, just from looking at them, I just say to myself, boy, I will be surprised if that movie turns out well, you know? And, um, and at the end of the day, the visual effects shots almost always look great, but the movie might not necessarily work. So, 
one of the advantages to go back to your question that like a John Wick has is that, and even though they're sure there are quite a few visual effect shots in a, in a John Wick film, but they're so craftily and beautifully done, you wouldn't even notice. It's, it's comparatively very few visual effect shots, at least, you know, say compared to a Marvel movie. And um, uh, the filmmakers can really focus on telling the story and, you know, making sure that that works. So that, that's like a, it's like a lens <clears throat> into the process, the filmmaking process that doesn't really get talked about, um, but I think is in fact um, what explains why by and large, a lot of the big effects driven movies sort of, there's a certain soullessness often to them, or there's just certain kind of like narrative flabbiness to them. Um, you, you don't, you don't, you know, when you're talking about these giant tentpole movies, you don't often hear people describe them as lean and mean, you know? Um, and uh, so that that's, so to, to take it back to breakdown, unburdened by visual effects, I had the luxury to just focus on telling that story, you know, um, and just make it work from, from that standpoint. So uh, anyway, that's, I'll get off my soapbox now, but that's fine. <laughs> no, that, that's okay. It was uh, interesting listening to you uh, talking about all that and uh, your thoughts on that. So that's all fine. Um, so I, I noticed, I, I know you're a very busy man. We're already slightly uh, overrunning. Um, so I, I just uh, fit in like one last question before I, I let sure. you go. How, how much fun was it uh, revisiting the film and doing the recording of the commentary uh, with, with Kurt Russell? for the the new blu-ray oh and that was it was so much fun to go back you know um i remember before i ever did a movie you know in that period of my career where i'd moved out to hollywood and i was just you know trying to struggle to, to just even make a living and just becoming a director was like just a, a distant dream in my head i remember seeing uh an interview with a, a director on a on a big national uh, interview, TV interview show. And the director sort of casually mentioned something in the interview about how he had never seen one of his films after he'd finished them. And the interviewer had the same reaction I did watching, which is like, what? Wait, wait, you've never seen any of your films after you finished them? That, that's like, that's crazy, right? And, and this director just said, no, I just, once I'm done, I just kind of move on. And I thought to myself, okay, that's nuts. If I ever get to direct a movie, I, I mean, maybe I won't watch it every day, but I think every week I would watch it. I would sit down and watch it every week. I mean, that just, you know, or, or certainly I would watch it a lot, you know? And the, you know, the funny thing to me is that all these years later, I am the same way. Like once I finish a film, you know, and keep in mind, I have seen it, you know, 50 million times in the editing room. Yeah. And then I've seen it um, in, in, you know, then, then, it, then it's released and then you're going to like kind of some screenings of it or there's premieres and then, you know, you're, you know, you have your Hollywood premiere and then you fly overseas and you have, you know, some premieres in foreign cities. So you've sat through it, you know, typically four or five times with an audience. Right. Um, and you can't, it's like, 
you have no perspective on it anymore. Like it, it, it's, you're so inside of it. Um, and, and then, and then you go on to do something else and then whatever you don't ever go back and see it. I mean, sometimes, you know, back when, you know, I still watch linear television, you know, if I'm flipping around and, you know, suddenly on, you know, HBO or something, I flipped and oh, there's my movie and it's sort of halfway through and I'm like, oh, I'll watch a few minutes of this. And then I kind of wind up watching, oh, I watched 20 minutes of it or maybe I'll watch it to the end. That happened a couple of times, but I never sought it out to, to, to sit there and watch it. So I had, um, uh, the only other time I'd, I'd seen the film start to finish was some years ago, like I showed it to, to a couple of my kids who were old enough to watch it at that point. Um, but other than that, I never had sat down to watch it again. So sitting there with Kurt, who, again, same thing for him, you know, it's like you, you, you do it, you finish it, and then you kind of, you mentally move on. Um, it, it, it's a, it's an interesting process. I guess it's a little bit like probably going to an old high school reunion and you see people who you'd forgotten, but you see their faces and, and, you know, at least at a high school reunion, people of age. So you, you know, but still they look the same to you, but in a movie, the faces are exactly the faces that you remembered, you know, because they've been preserved and all these memories start coming back. Um, and what's so interesting is, is how much do you remember? Uh, and, um, you know, few of us can remember what we were doing, you know, 20 years ago. Um, and, uh, but there's something about the process of making a film that focuses your thoughts at the time that, that maybe those memories just get implanted in just a different part of the brain that makes the recall easier. But both Kurt and I um, had just really specific detailed memories of what was happening in certain moments, what we were doing. I mean, we remember everything. Sometimes he would remind me of something I'd forgotten and vice versa. But generally speaking, it was, it was very interesting to, to unlock those sort of, uh, th those little memory boxes, for lack of a better word. And, um, uh, and, and Kurt, um, you know, has a reputation for doing very entertaining commentaries. Um, and uh, so I hope that, uh, I certainly enjoyed sitting there, you know, as a participant with him, I enjoyed sitting there listening to, to him, you know, talk about his his uh his recollections of the film and, and comment on specific moments um and i actually got a chance to ask him some questions that i never asked him before about the film and about his performance so that that was also interesting but it was it was uh it was enjoyable and uh and i hope that um people who uh get a chance to listen to that commentary track will enjoy hearing it as much as i enjoyed recording it excellent well, I'll I'll uh, look forward uh, to to picking that up. Um, like as I've said, when this episode goes out, it will be out. Uh, but I'll I'll be interested uh, to listen to that. And um, just uh, thank you very much uh, for giving your thoughts uh, on on this episode of the show and and coming on. My pleasure, and uh, um, good luck with the show. And um uh thanks for having me that was my guest jonathan mosto there who i'd like to thank for coming on this inaugural interview edition of the podcast also i'd like to thank all you listeners for tuning into this bonus episode 
please do get in touch if you would like to hear more of this sort of thing on the podcast. Also, please make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And it would be great if you could leave us a five-star review because it really helps us with those old algorithms. Anyway, that is all for this time, but be sure to listen out for our season finale covering the movie Soldier next Wednesday. Until then, though, see ya.